This morning, I want to ask you simply this uh, question, and that is, um, how full is your hope tank <laughs> these days? Dr. Shane Lopez, uh, the, the psychologist who is regarded um, as one of the world's leading researchers on this topic, this issue uh, of hope, claims that hope isn't just an emotion. Rather, hope is really an essential tool, a central life tool. Studies show hopeful college kids get higher GPAs <laughs> and uh, are more likely to graduate. Um, studies show that hopeful athletes perform better on the field, uh, cope better with injuries, and have a greater mental adjustment when situations change. In one study, in fact, of the elderly, those who said that they felt hopeless were more than twice as likely to die during the study follow-up period than those who were more hopeful. <laughs> hopeful, uh, being hopeful is certainly an essential life skill. Now, one of the remarkable things about it when you study history is one of the things brought by Jesus to the ancient world was the elevation of hope into a primary uh, positive virtue. Before that, hope was not regarded uh, very well uh, by the Greco-Roman world. In fact, Stoic philosophers at the time would regard hope as kind of a, a, a moral weakness. Um, they considered hope to be a fool's game. To hope was to put your well-being in the hands of uh, uh, something that was not underneath your control. Hope, they said, will disappoint you. In fact, one Roman philosopher um, Epictetus uh, said, don't get too attached to anything. Protect your heart from disappointment. At the very moment you are taking joy in something, present yourself with the opposite outcome. <laughs> he said this, uh, what harm is it that, uh, that just when you're kissing your little child, you say, tomorrow you will die? Well, I can think of a couple different harms. <laughs> uh, one is you might scare the little child, right? Uh, might be one reason why you never heard of Epictetus Jr. <laughs> the kid was, uh, uh, you know, um, in therapy the rest of his life. Uh, he always said, Mom, Mom, uh, don't let Dad tuck me in again, will you? <laughs> um, of course, you know, you and I, uh, we take it for granted that hope is a good thing. But not if it's untethered, Right? The hope that Jesus introduced to the world was a hope that uh, the New Testament talks about is a hope that was rooted in reality. It was a hope that uh, was grounded in truth. So let me ask you once again, how full is your hope tank today? And my invitation to you this morning is simply this, is for you to hope to fill your hope tank to overflowing. And to help you do that, what I want to do is I want to introduce you, uh, I want to invite you to uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to look with me at Paul's words here, starting in verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Here's what Paul writes. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Um, since we have such a hope, he says. That word since there is a connecting word in Scripture. It looks backward to a specific uh, promise or truth or idea. Um, it says, because this is true, then, um, uh, then, then let's live this way. I might say, for example, um, since I was late, I was in a hurry. The truth was I was late, so <laughs> therefore I was in a hurry. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series called Good Sense. Now, it's a play on the words. Uh, sense is not S-E-N-S-E, but S-I-N-S-E. Good sense. We're playing off this word. Good sense, past truths for present life. For the next four weeks, running up to Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to take a look at four different passages from Scripture that use this word sense. And we're going to look at the past truths that, the, that propel us forward in our life with Christ. So what is the truth here that inspires hope, <laughs> Paul tells us? Well, Paul tells us what that truth is in the previous verses, starting back up in verse 7. Look with me at verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul here, what he's doing is he's comparing the old covenant with the new covenant, okay? Now, you say, well, what, what's he doing this for? Well, it was because evidently um, some teachers had come into Corinth and they were challenging Paul and his teaching. They were Judaizers who were, um, who were regarding the Mosaic law as essential for one to have salvation. You had to follow the Mosaic law. And they're trying to impose the old covenant and its laws and its regulations upon the Gentile Christians that were there in Corinth. Old covenant is the law. It, the old covenant, it was the ministry of Moses. It was how people in the Old Testament would, would come to God. They came through obedience to the law. In contrast, the New Testament, or the New Covenant, is the gospel of Jesus. Um, it's, it's the cross. It's the way that people come to God today, through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us in his death on the cross. And so Paul here is arguing for the superiority of the new covenant. And he tells us three ways that this new covenant is superior. Three ways that this new covenant is better. Three ways that the truth of, God's, of Christ's gospel inspires us to great hope. First, 
First, uh, it's superior because Christ's gospel, he says, brings life. I want you to see this. Start with me, in fact, back up in uh, the end of verse 6. Look what he says here. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Again, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of spirit have even more glory? Um, uh, Paul here is describing the old covenant. Do you catch this? As the ministry of death. That's where he starts off there in verse 7. Verse 6, at the end, he says, it's the letter that kills what Paul's doing here is he's um, referring to Moses' experience of going up on Mount Sinai to get that law from God, which he got on two stone tablets. I think the stone tablets are, are a fairly good picture of what the law could do. Uh, they were hard. They were cold. They were impersonal. Sure, the law had some glory, um, after all, it revealed the character of God and um, uh, revealed God's expectations. But the problem was the law couldn't change a person's heart. It didn't enable a person to have a relationship with God. In fact, as you begin practicing the law and following it, the best the law could do was to make you a rule follower. I mean, if you wanted to be okay with God... <laughs> you'd have to go through your checklist. Um, um, did I do that? Check. Did I not do that? Check. <laughs> In my household uh, growing up, uh, when I was growing up, most Saturday mornings, um, I would always wake up to a checklist. Um, you see, in, in my house, my parents, they made a checklist every Saturday morning of, of different chores we all had to do. And the checklist was law. Um, and uh, we had to follow through. We had to check off that checklist, make sure we do those chores before we could go uh, out with our friends or, or go anywhere or before I could ever go out and play some tennis or whatever. I had to always, you know, check it off the list. And on my checklist, I, I, I swear, on my checklist um, was clean the garage every week. I mean, clean the garage. I mean, that's an impossible task. Who can clean the garage? Uh, uh, you know, I hated that checklist. That was the ministry of Moses. It came with a checklist, which could never be completed, uh, completely satisfied. I mean, it was an impossible task. And it didn't produce a relationship with God. No, the Bible says as the people tried to follow the law along the way, in fact, their hearts became hard like stone. While the first covenant was do this and you'll die, the new covenant, Christ's gospel, the ministry of the Spirit is believe this and you will live. And friends, can I tell you, that's a far better covenant, isn't it? It's not something you had to earn, but rather something that you were, you were given. Um, the ministry of the Spirit is is superior, and it's more glorious. In Ezekiel 36, 26, God says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart 
of flesh. Now catch this. Um, God was telling the Israelites, he was telling you and I, he was telling this, uh, us, this whole idea of the new covenant before the old covenant was even finished. God announced a better way. He announced a more glorious way that it was coming. He is going to change your heart and he was going to draw you into a relationship with the living God. He is going to give you life. Not just a religion. I think the best way to, to illustrate this uh, is to illustrate it from Scripture. Uh, two different uh, uh, stories. In Exodus 32, remember Moses, he goes up to Mount Sinai, right? And he's getting the law from God on those two stone tablets. But when he comes down, what does he find? He finds the people of Israel worshiping that golden calf, right? Even before they get the law, they've broken it. As a result, Moses explodes. Literally, the Bible uh, says his anger burned hot. (laughs) And on that day, 3,000 Israelites die because why? They broke the law. They didn't follow the rules. As Paul tells us, the letter kills. Second story. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, we read about Peter preaching, right? And he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God moves in that crowd. And do you know what happens? 3,000 people on that day receive God's gift of salvation. The Spirit gives life. John 10, 10, uh, Jesus says, the thief, and he's talking here about the Pharisees who are telling people that they have to follow the law. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. (laughs) See, Christ's gospel is superior because it gives us life. It makes us into living beings. And that truth, friends, gives all of us hope doesn't it? A second way that Christ's gospel is superior superior is that it brings righteousness. Look with me at verse 9. Look what he says here. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. While the old covenant condemns, it's the ministry of condemnation, right? The new covenant acquits which is the opposite of condemns. In other words, Christ's gospel does not count men's sins against them. God forgives those who believe in him and who who belong to his son who died for them. And if the old covenant, which condemns, was accompanied by glory, he says, then how much more glorious... um, Must the new covenant be, since it declares people righteous? (laughs) You see, the old covenant's problem was that you couldn't obey all the rules. You might be able to keep some of them, but not all of them. And so the law, instead of leading people to righteousness, what it did was it led people to frustration. You would try, and you would try, and you would try to, to get it all right, but you couldn't measure up. 
And so all the old covenant was do, would do was, was it would allow people to see how unrighteous they truly were. But here's an amazing truth. What we could not do, God did by sending his son to die for us. And when Jesus dies, catch this, an unbelievable exchange took place. Jesus said, here, here give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. So when you and I, when we stand before God, God looks at us and says, pure, not guilty, clean. <laughs> right now, because of this exchange, you stand righteous before God. And listen, you could not gain that righteousness by yourself, but Jesus could, and he did. Um, in her book, Because He Loves, How Christ Transforms Our Daily Life, Elise Fitzpatrick writes it this way. I love her description here. Just in case you're unaware, identity theft occurs when someone steals your name and other personal information for fraudulent use. Most of us are dismayed by this new cyber age crime, and we wouldn't assume that the theft of another person's identity is acceptable behavior. The surprising reality, however, is that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity. They're called Christians because they've taken the identity of someone else, the Christ. Not only have you been given an identity that you weren't born with or that you didn't earn the right to use, you're invited to empty the checking account and use all of the benefits that this identity brings. This is so much better than identity theft. No, this is an identity gift. See, Jesus, God's perfect son, has given us his identity. An exchange has taken place. Incredible exchange. In Jesus, you and I, we stand before the Father righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sometimes I'll be in a conversation with a person, and I'll ask, well, tell me, are, are, you, are you a believer? Have uh, you ever received God's gift of salvation? And, and sometimes they'll respond this way. They say, well, I, I think so. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I have. And I have to tell them, you know, if that's your answer, then you don't understand the truth of Christ's gospel because your lack of confidence in your salvation only proves that you think Jesus only paid your sin mostly and that there's more that you have to do. <laughs> if only I do this, we say. If only I do this little bit more. If only I make sure I follow this way and do this, then God will receive me. Wrong. <laughs> I got to tell you, that's heresy. 
Your righteousness is based only on what Jesus has done. An exchange has taken place through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Christ's gospel, and it far exceeds the ministry of the law. That's what Paul is telling us, and that gives us hope. Doesn't it give you hope? Third, Christ's gospel is superior and provides hope because it is permanent. Look with me at verse 11. He says, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Skip down to verse 13. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Brought to an end. See, when Moses first came down the mountain, catch this. After being with God, his face was radiant. I mean, it was, it was shining. Um, and so what he had to do was he had to put a veil over his face. And whenever he would go out to that tent of meeting and he would meet with God face to face, he would take off that veil. But when he left that tent of meeting and would go out and meet with the people of Israel, he'd put that veil back over his face. Why? Because Moses didn't want the people to realize that this glory was fading, that this glory was temporary, that this glory would not last, that it was limited. The old covenant, the law of Moses was limited in its application. Think about it. A person would go to the tabernacle and they would do the law thing. They would sacrifice the lamb to cover their sins and they'd walk out completely forgiven, right? On their way back to their tent, uh, you know, you can imagine they would stub their toe and they'd start cursing. <laughs> oh man, now I got to turn back around and do the whole law thing again, you know? Over and over again. Hebrews 10, the writer says, for it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. The old covenant was limited in its application, but it was also limited in its duration. The law was never intended to be permanent. It was meant to point people ahead to Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 10.1 says, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Jesus was to come. The old covenant was just for a season to get people prepared, to get them to, to, to yearn, ache for something greater, something better. Then Jesus came, and the law became obsolete. And as I say, the sun has risen. When the sun has risen, lamps cease to be of use. The cross of Christ has a greater glory than the law. The gospel of Jesus appeared both in its application and its duration. See, whenever the Levitical high priest went in, he would have to make an atonement for one more year, for one more year, for one more year. All he was doing was rolling the debt forward one more year. But in the new covenant, catch this, Jesus, our high priest, he offers one sacrifice for sins forever. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And it remains so. 
Back in 1994, Brazil decided it needed to change its currency. The money used to be the cruzado. I don't know if I pronounced that right or not, but it used to be the cruzado. Uh, at that time, in, inflation in Brazil was over 2,000% a year. Um, you think we have it bad. Uh, 2,000% a, a year. There was no such thing as, as a loan because um, uh, the interest rate was just too high. No one could afford uh, getting any type of loan at all. So what the government did was they announced, um, listen, we're going to have a new monetary system called the real. But the minute they announced that there would be a new monetary system, what do you think happened to the value of the old? <laughs> it changed, right? It already was bad, but it got it worse immediately. The minute they said that, hey, we're going to go to a new monetary system, all the money people had saved in their banks became virtually worthless. The minute that God said there's going to be a new covenant, he made the old one obsolete, friends. When he pointed people to Christ, it already told them that the sacrifices, that they, they weren't enough. There was always about faith in Jesus, God's son. In other words, with Christ coming, the hands of God's clock move from a.m. to p.m., from B.C. to A.D., never to return. <laughs> there is no putting back God's clock. And God's promise is that what he has started in me, in you, He'll carry it on to completion. See, we don't have to worry about the gospel having some expiration date on it. <laughs> um, we don't have to worry about it wearing out. He is in the business, in fact, of transforming us. Look with me at verse 17 and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Listen, if you are a believer, if you're a believer, God has put his Spirit inside you. And God's Spirit is not just content to sit there, you know, twiddling his thumbs. No, God's Spirit is transforming you. God's Spirit is at work, and he is, is working to change you. Christ is being formed in each one of us. Praise God. Friends, I got to tell you, it's one reason we put together that Extraordinary Norms uh, little booklet we've been talking about in the past few weeks, because we want to encourage you to partner with God in his work in your life to transform you into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. If you don't have that little Extraordinary Norms booklet, you've got to pick it up. It's out there. There's one out there in the, in, the, in the lobby at the Welcome Center. Make sure you pick one up. Use it. This is our living hope. It's our living hope. God is going to transform us. Or as Peter said, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, listen, to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's our hope, a living hope. It's incredible hope. 
And since we have such an incredible hope, Paul says, we can have courage. Gospel hope produces gospel boldness. What kind of boldness, you ask? A boldness to live out the Christian life in a world that doesn't believe. A boldness and courage to love people that are hard to love. A courage to forgive and to move towards people that are on the margins of life. A courage to to share the gospel. Paul says Moses would veil his face so that people could not see the glory of God. But listen, we have a hope, a hope that brings life and righteousness and transformation so we can be bold. (laughs) We can be bold and we can lift the veil and let people see the glory of God working in us and through our lives. We have the hope of inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken, kept in heaven for us. Why would we be ever be ashamed? Or why would we ever feel afraid? <laughs> we have that hope so we can be bold. There's a famous painting by G.F. Watts, painted after his adopted daughter Blanche died. The painting is a study of contradictions because while it's titled Hope, the painting itself depicts despair. Shows a woman sitting on top of the world playing a harp. What more enviable uh, position could anyone ever hope to achieve than being on top of the world, right? With everyone dancing to your music. But, you know, as you look closer at this painting, this illusion of power gives way to the reality of pain. The world on which this woman sits is our world, your world, my world, torn by war, destroyed by hate, decimated by uh, despair, devastated by distrust. This world is a broken place, right? You and I might think of being on top of the world as kind of like, hey, man, I get on top of the world, I'm in heaven. (laughs) When you look at this woman in Watts' painting, you discover this woman is in hell. She's wearing rags. Her tattered clothes look as if the woman herself has come through a war. Her head is bandaged and blood seeps through the bandages. Scars and cuts are visible on her face, her arms, and her legs. And you look closer, you can see the harp that she's plucking only has one string still remaining. All the others are broken or ripped out. Isn't that the way it is for many of us? We give the illusion, right, of being uh, in an enviable position, you know, on top of the world. But you look closer at our lives, and our lives reveal the pain, the pain too deep for the tongue to tell. For the woman in the painting, what looks to be in heaven is actually an existence in quiet hell. G.K. Chesterton wrote that the first thought of anyone seeing this painting is that it should be called despair. Yet the artist dares to title it hope. (laughs) Why? 
Well, if you were up close, you could take one more look at that painting. And instead of looking at the, ver- or the, the horizontal dimensions, uh, you took a look at the vertical relationships. And over her head, if you looked at the actual painting, you would see one tiny, even faint little star. That's why this painting is titled Hope. Because in spite of the brokenness of our world, in spite of the pain and despair, which can so easily, you know, overtake our lives, in spite of her clothes being rags and her heart being but destroyed with only one string left, she still finds enough hope to sing praises to God. She still sees a heavenly light. The vertical dimension overcomes what is going on on the horizontal dimension. Listen, in a world where the cynic or the stoic will say, hope is a fool's game, God tells us that we have hope. Not because of some wishful thinking, but because our hope is based on the truth of Jesus' gospel. And we know that the truth of, God's, uh, of Christ's gospel inspires a gospel hope that produces a gospel boldness. So my invitation to all of us today is to fill up your hope tank. <laughs> Allow the truth of the good news of the gospel just to sink in. Let it overflow into a confidence, a boldness to lift the mask, to lift the veil, and let everyone see the glory of God through our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope that you give us in in the new covenant, in, in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ gospel that brings life, gospel that brings righteousness, a gospel that brings transformation. God, might that gospel inspire in us, produce in us, not just the hope, but the courage, the boldness that we need today to live out truth, your truth in our lives. In your son's precious name, we pray these things. Amen.